Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. It has to be a woman's choice and and they have to be in charge of their own bodies. At one level, it's easier being a girl than it is being a boy. You could have children, you have a role, you have a purpose. But with a boy, what? Are there things that we can be doing? Well, maybe it isn't the doing, maybe it is the being. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Before we begin this week's episode and share the conversation with all of you, I wanted to let you know, sadly, that our interviewee, Dr. Alphys Christopher, has passed away since we recorded. She was ill and died peacefully at home with her loved ones and was extremely gracious about wanting to bring this conversation to everyone and share her work and the importance of the topics that we discuss to get to all my listeners. And for that, I will forever be indebted and grateful to Alphys for I miss her dearly and feel grateful that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk. And I'm really do send my deepest condolences and sympathies to Alphys's family. I am so very delighted to be introducing you to today's guest, Dr. Alphys Christopher, a woman who has been a true pioneer in women's health. She has spent her lifetime dedicated to helping others and inspiring clinicians. With a career spanning five decades, she has worked as a consultant, a medical officer and lecturer in the areas of family planning, reproductive health care and psychosexual medicine. A shiny example of working in new and innovative ways for the times that she found herself in and often against the odds. She has worked in extremely deprived areas with vulnerable women and at a time when women found it hard to access the things that we might be taking for granted today, such as the pill, and abortion had yet to be legalised in the UK. However, despite these advances in healthcare over the years, Dr Christopher shares that her concerns are that things have gone backwards in terms of sexual health provision for women, even here in the UK. And given what we have recently heard and read about and what has transpired in the US around women's rights, around choice and sexual health, I believe this topic could not have come at a more pivotal time in history and could not be more relevant nor timely for women everywhere in the world. Qualifying as a physician in 1961, Dr. Christopher's many professional achievements include founder member of the Institute of Psychosexual Medicine, founding member of the Society of Public Health, honorary member of the Family Planning Association, and election as a fellow of the Faculty of Family Planning and Reproductive Care, 2005. As a young doctor in the 1970s, Dr. Christopher found herself being challenged for having and I'm going to say this in quotes, the audacity to teach sex education to 14 and 15 year olds in Haringey schools. In 
As a lecturer for the Family Planning Association, she had spotted an unmet need for young people to be educated about contraceptive methods, population problems and individual responsibility. She witnessed the chronic lack of basic sex education amongst the women she worked with. Dr Christopher has been hugely instrumental in paving the way for many young women on this front, while risking her own safety and that of her three daughters as she received obscene threats from many who opposed her views, as this was a time in society when sex for the unmarried was highly discouraged and frowned upon. Over the years, Dr Christopher's brave and much-needed work alongside that of many others saw courses for teachers in schools, Midwives and social workers in healthcare centres provide necessary and vital information about reproductive organs, sex and contraception. I often remind myself, my daughter and my students, that as females here in 2022, we stand on the shoulders of the courageous and inspiring women who have worked so tirelessly to move and enhance our lives on. And I could not be more grateful and honoured to have an exemplary role model here today who is this splendid example of just this. Dr. Christopher, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generosity in giving up your time and for all that you've done for us as females. I know you doing this interview is a real special treat because you have actually stopped doing any public interviews and talks. So this feels extremely special and I feel very privileged to be in your good company. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Thank you very much, Ramita. Delighted to be here. It really is um, an unplanned but an immensely pertinent time to be having this conversation with you. Given the introduction, I I explained your incredible work in terms of women's health and what's happened and unfolded in the States around abortion and women's rights. I feel that we should really get your views on that in greater detail, if you don't mind. But I would love to come back to that and maybe start the interview with sharing your incredible journey with us as a young girl first. How does that sound? That sounds fine. Excellent. So let's start. I think of one of the many stories um, that I'm very much inspired by from your childhood, which you've sh- generously shared with me previously, is the one of you living in London during the Second World War. I wonder if you wouldn't mind going back and sharing your recollections, although they might be slightly sad and a bit painful, and experiences from that point with us. Yes, I was born in 1936, so uh, war broke out in 1939. We lived in the the heart of the West End of London, my parents, myself, I'm an only child, um, with my mother's relatives as well. And um, my memory really, one of the memories that I have of the Blitz in London was going to a shelter. In those days, you know, the sirens would go and you'd have to go to a shelter. So I remember going to a shelter in Foley Street And I actually realised only later that I was in London during the Blitz um, because I wasn't evacuated from London until May 1941. And there'd been enormous bombing around where I lived. The Queen's Hall in Portland Place was entirely destroyed and flats opposite our home were also destroyed. So I was there, but I, I don't have the memories of that. What I do have the memory of is going on the train at St Pancras, which had been bombed as well, uh, to a place called Luton, uh, which was uh, outside about 30 miles away from London. 
And I thought that I was going with my parents for a lovely day out. And uh, we were going to an aunt of mine, um, an English woman married to my mother's brother, who had a house in a place called Sundon Park, five miles outside of Luton. And we were going to her home and I experienced terrible shock when my parents actually left me and I didn't go back with them. I was meant to stay with this aunt. And I do remember that as a shocking, dark experience, which I revisited um, later, many years later, when I had um, psychoanalysis. And it was a very dark time. And I stayed with this woman for about a few months, but she was pregnant with one of my cousins, told the lady next door, an English woman, um, I can't look after Elphis, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in those days, you either had to have an evacuee, you know, with you or a soldier billeted on you. And this woman said, I'll talk to my husband and we'll see if we can take her. And that's how I came to live with this English family, who I did not know at all. My parents didn't know at all. And um, so that was one of the very striking memories that, that I have. And um, How old were you? I, well, when I was evacuated, I was four and a half. And, um, and of course, I... You know, the loss of what I had then was I lost my Greek family. I lost the language that I spoke. I spoke Greek um, and really became anglicized when I lived with this English family. And um, I'm not sure that my parents were upset about that in terms, I think they, they'd come as economic migrants from Cyprus, uh, my father in 1926, my mother in 1935. And I think they wanted to adjust to English society. I don't think they had thoughts of going back to Cyprus. They both came from impoverished backgrounds. And I think they saw England as opportunity. Yeah, no, I understand all of that. And I can really trying to put myself in your shoes. It's quite difficult. I can't even imagine the amount of emotion that must be going around your mind at that and confusion. At what point did you... Or when did you get re when did you get reunited with your family? How many years were oh, you with Oh, a long time actually. Because what happened was that my mother, my mother worked as a seamstress and worked very hard, and she hated the country. She didn't want to stay in the country with me, and uh, she would come and visit. She claims that she came every week, but I don't remember that. And. She would then go back to London where she was with her sisters and she was the oldest of a family of seven. And so um, that's the memory I have of her. My father did come down once, I think, because my father joined the British Army. He fought in Europe. Um, he joined as a chef. Um, and he. there was one winter, I recall, that I fell on the ice and cut... Uh, I have a cut above my left eye. And I remember him being there and taking me to the doctor. And that is all the memory I have of him coming to see me. Now, 
They left me there until 1948. And what was the reason for that? Complicated. Mm. Um, My father, this is the way with immigrant families, they help one another. My father brought his brother over to stay with them. They had only a small flat in the West End, a two-room kitchen flat. There was no real room for me. But there was another motive. At those days, um, with the welfare state coming in in 1948, uh, if you pass something called the scholarship, you would go to a grammar school. My father, my parents could never have afforded to send me to private schools or anything like that. And so the idea was not to upset my um, studying and uh, that. So I stayed until 1948 when I did pass the scholarship and was able to go to grammar school. But again, there's this memory that I have of my father coming to get me and we're on the train going back to London. And the woman who I was evacuated with, I mean, she wasn't unkind, but it wasn't home that I always knew. And I had my case, my little case packed up, ready to leave at any time. And she said, oh, Elphis, don't let them turn you into a little Greek. And I would say, oh, no, Gran, because that's what she asked me to call her. And when we're on the train going back, um, my father said, you're not going back, Abby, you're not going back. And I said, but Daddy, my bike and Judy, the dog and, you know, my friends. No, he said, you're going to stay in London now. And I was shocked by that. But when I got to London, I, and with my mother, of course, I just thought, I'm home. I am home. Um, Gosh, that feeling of displacement. Very much so. Abandonment. Very, very, very much so. And of course, I came anglicised, you see, Ramita. I came as now a little English girl, not really, but, you know, to all intents and purposes, and I came into this, uh, we lived in a block of flats, so that my parent, we had a third floor flat, her sisters had the first and second floor, and I came back into this Greek world, and I thought, oh, they're all jabber-jabber-jabbering away, I don't understand it, and I think I sort of cut myself off, because I didn't try to learn, relearn Greek, and my parents certainly never forced me to do that. And so I would go out into the English world Mm. to a grammar school, which I went to, Paddington and Maidervale High School, which no longer exists, and then come back into the Greek world. So it was a very split kind of existence, but also very enriching. I look back and I am actually grateful to think of the family that I grew up in, that I knew so many adults, and being an observant child, I kind of watched them and looked at relationships, you know, between my aunts and uncles and parents Mm. and that kind of thing. So I was kind of on the QV with with all of that. And I think they must have found me strange because most of them didn't speak good English. I mean, it was more or less pidgin English. And um, I think they found me a bit bit odd, really. (laughs) But I had an uncle who... um, 
used to take me out before the war to Regent's Park. And I, I was a little Shirley Temple at that time. I used to sing and dance oh. a lot. <laughs> and I remember this uncle saying to me, um, what are you going to be when you grow up? No, no. So uh, are you going to be a dancer? And I said, no, I don't think so. Um, because before the war, my father worked in a very famous club, which I only realised when I went back on my history, called the Murray's Club in Beak Street, where posh people went for dinner dances and uh, became quite infamous because Christine Keeler in the 50s used to go there. Um, but my father was a chef there, and that's when I used to sort of tap dance and do the Shirley Temple thing, apparently. Oh, <laughs> but it didn't last then. It wasn't what you wanted to carry no, on. No. Yeah, no. But I think what's so telling in the story and this really moving, heartwarming way that you relay your time as a young girl is that all teens and all young girls are going through an identity formation and understanding mm -hmm. who they are during those adolescent period anyway. Mm -hmm. And then there's you without the actual security and knowledge of knowing a, where home is, and I know yeah. you say you found that finally when you were back yeah. with your parents. Yes. But gosh, it talked to me about how confusing it must have been for you to understand who Elphis was yes. at that point. Yes. Yeah. And there's also another tale in this, actually, Ramita, which is my name. My Greek name is actually Elpida, oh. which means hope in English. And it's my grandmother's name because that's what happened in Greek Cypriot families. You were called after your, your grandparent. And when I went to school, to English school, primary school, um, and they would ask me, um, what's your name, dear? Now, my father, bless him, he couldn't, he didn't at that time speak very good English and trying to explain to the registrar when he, you know, named my birth. He said, her name is Erpis, Erpis, Erpis. And the diminutive of Elpitha is Elpis. Now, in my young mind, and I truly to this day I puzzle on it, I picked up that the English um, might start calling me Piss because of Elpis. Of course, right. And I thought there is no way that's going to happen. So when the teacher said to me, um, and what is your name, dear? And I said, Elphis. And um, now, where did I get the PH from? Because I had a friend called Phyllis. Oh. And so this little girl is saying, and how do you spell it? E-L-P-H-I-S. And that name is what I call myself, but it's not my official name. Wow. So there in itself the split is the issue. was already there. there. was already there. The identity question, yeah. where I belong question, yeah. and what you call yourself yeah. is a, yeah, that massive. That's, I mean, I bet there are lots of immigrant families, lots of people of immigrant homes that can relate to this idea of having your true names or your real yeah. birth names being stripped because they aren't, they don't translate well in the yeah. culture you find yourself yeah. in. Yeah. And the other thing of being in the country, remember that I was probably, there was another Cypriot family, funnily enough, in Sundon Park. I don't know how they got there. Um, but I was the odd one, definitely the odd one. And so I would get remarks like, oh, haven't you got lovely curly hair? Oh, aren't your eyes dark? Oh, you know, and, and I did not want that. I really didn't. I used to think, Sadly, actually, I used to think, oh, if only my mother 
who had blue eyes and blonde hair, mm. she'd understand how I'm feeling because her English wasn't good either. Mm. And the one time I did speak to her about it and said, Mummy, um, you know, the, the people here, they make me clean. I did actually clean the house and I went shopping for them. And, you know, can I come home? And she said, there are bombs in London, Abby, you have to stay. End of story. And it was never, ever discussed again. Never. Isn't that interesting? Because my next question was going to be, how did you feel you were supported and what kind of compassion levels were shown to you by any of the adults around you during the time or after returning back to London? Well, I think, think, they, did, I think they did their best, Ramita. And remember, those were times you didn't talk about feelings. Yeah. And my father was very much a stoic. And I remember when he took me to have the stitches put in my uh, cut eye, he said, don't cry, then glay, which is Greek. Then Glade, don't cry, don't cry. So I was this brave little tomboy with my bike. Psychologically, the person, or rather the <laughs> animal that helped me, was they had a dog. And that dog was just so important to me. Because I would go and sit with her. It's a, a female whippet, actually, called Judy. And I'd tell her all my troubles. And I did all the things I'm sure that kids do nowadays who are immigrant. I wet the bed, I bit my nails, all of that. Because of all the anxiety and everything you're feeling in terms of absolutely. being lost. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, Elvis, you've clearly been incredibly brave as well because to sit down and show empathy towards your parents even today and thinking about they did the best they could, you had a whole Greek family to return to when you came back. You had a yes. big, massive family, having been quite a small, isolated, rural community for all the years, yes. the formative years of your childhood. Yes. What did that feel like? Well, as I said, it was it was strange, actually. I mean, I was glad to have them, and they always were very loving to me. I have to say, my aunts particularly, they were very loving. And I think they did appreciate what I'd been through, but I don't think, as I said, that they ever talked about it. It's interesting that when I went into analysis, which I did when I was 47, my analyst, she absolutely got it in one. Um, she was an American woman, sadly has died. Um, and she, the first interview I had with her, and I gave her the story I'm telling you, and she said to me, and what happened to the little Greek girl? Mm. And that went straight to my heart. Nobody had ever said that to me. Mm. And I thought, I'm in the right place. This woman really understands yeah. what, what, what I've been through. And, um, and she said, actually, that the country, the countryside, I love, you see, in those days, Ramita, you couldn't drive a car. There was no petrol for people to have cars. Mm. Um, and so the roads and the countryside, you know, it was freedom, actually. I would go out on my bike take something called a bottle of pop, which is a bit like a soft drink. Mm. And um, and I loved that, actually. And she said the countryside became like a mother for me at that time. Because you could be yourself and be quite absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And what about friendships? How did you formulate oh, friendships? Oh, yes, I had, a, a, I had a very dear friend called Lavinia, and sadly she's died. She had dementia and died 
about 10 years ago now, and we were absolutely bosom pals, but also rivals. <laughs> was we... she a fellow evacuee as well? No, no, no. not at all. Okay. She had her mummy and daddy and everything, yeah. Uh, but the people I lived with wouldn't allow me to bring friends home. So we, you know, obviously we met at school, and I loved school. I always loved school, and I loved learning. And um, so we were absolutely bosom pals, and I made a vow to myself. You know the way the children are? I vowed nobody, when I came back to London, nobody would ever be my best friend again because oh. Lavinia was my best friend. Yeah. And uh, and we kept contact, obviously, over the years, so we didn't live near one another. But, um, yeah, so we had a gang of us that would go around and we could play in the street. You weren't worried about playing in the street. There was no traffic. And the war at that point wasn't clearly something that... The the adults around you were so... Well, it was so odd, you know, when I think back to did the war impinge in, in any, any way, really. Um, what we did know as children was something about the Americans. And there was this saying that the Americans were overfed, oversexed and over here. Now, how I knew that as a child, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, kids tell each other these things. And so we were aware... Um, I didn't know until many, many years later that where I lived in Sundon Park, there was the, the Skefko ball bearing factory where they made ball bearings, which the Germans were trying to find to bomb. So my mother couldn't have sent me to a more dangerous place. But they actually camouflaged that factory and Lee Grave, where the other factory was, to make a sort of funny village, so with trees and things like that, so that the, the reconnaissance planes wouldn't find the actual ball bearing factory. Goodness. But you must have had some level of fear then about your own parents' safety as well. well I'm not sure that I did, you see. That's the odd thing. It was as though they, they were in another world. And um no, is that I, how you I compartmentalize? Yes, I think yeah. so. I think so. Almost like a detachment. I, I think that's right. I'm looking around the news today and obviously quite filled with quite, you know, with so much despair, thinking about where we are today with the wars happening in multiple places and many people who are forced to flee their hometowns for safety. I know you once said to me you didn't think you'd see what's happening in Europe ever in your lifetime again. And yet here we are. And I wonder what thoughts you might be having going through your own mind in terms of what your personal experiences were like. And for those people who are now in a similar situation. I have a lot of empathy for them, and I think it's absolutely wicked and dreadful what's happening in Ukraine. And um, I think that Putin is really quite evil to do inflict this, and especially when I see the children and the sorrow on their faces. There's one picture that indelibly is in my mind of a father burying his wife and a little boy of six or seven standing by. And I think... No one deserves this. Yeah. No one deserves this. And I know a lot of history, actually, uh, Remita. I followed up the Second World War. I know a lot of history in the background. And it's it saddens me, really, what's also happening in Russia, that Russia is not the Russian people, and one must separate out the ruler from the people they don't they don't deserve this either actually mm. what's going on and to be kept in ignorance of what's going on 
And this very false idea of reconstituting the Russian Empire. And, you know, I think, I suppose the, the analyst in me thinks that, that no real mourning took place for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. And uh, in fact, I mean, Putin has said that this was the, the worst catastrophe in, in the 20th century was the fall of the communists uh, and USSR. Um, but I don't think there was a real mourning and grieving um, to take place about that loss. Mm. And I think he's doing in a mad way a sort of reparative thing of reclaiming uh, this this lost empire. Sure. And grief can do all sorts of funny things to, to Absolutely. the best of us, can't it? Absolutely. And you talk about, you know, having actual remorse and time and, and ability to say goodbye and all of that. And I think back to your journey, what you first lost when you arrived at this new, your aunt and then your aunt not wanting you. And then the gran who looked after you and yeah. having to come back to parents and saying goodbye to gran and the dog particularly. Yes. I mean, just in terms of talking about grief and, and obviously with Putin having his own, his own issues, what do you think is the best way for us to help people that are grieving or are recognizing that young people, you know, including children who don't have the language and the ability to express what they're going through is of loss and fear around that loss. Because I do think it starts with that. Maybe Putin had given those skills when he was younger. Perhaps it wouldn't be so. And I'm using Putin as a very generalist example. But I mean, in our everyday today, girls, they say, can be a little bit more expressive than boys. I don't know how true that is all the time. But I wonder, given what you went through, and I know you, you threw yourself into your school and you had your dog, but lots of kids don't even have that. Yes, I know. I know I, I don't have any easy answers for that other than being a witness. Right, yeah. You know, to be a witness to the pain and the suffering, um, not to be intrusive, that, that doesn't work somehow. You know, you have to be very gentle, I think. And I think it's wonderful that a lot of English people are opening their homes to mm. because that will be reparative work. But they, they'll want to go back. Mm. With me, there wasn't that sense of going back, apart from going back to my my parents. But, you know, I hadn't lost my country, as it were. You know, Cyprus doesn't mean a lot to me. Right, because you were so young when you left. Yeah, and I was born in London. Mm. I wasn't. I was born at the Middlesex Hospital. So Cyprus didn't mean that uh, in that way to me. Um, no, I think it's absolutely devastating. Did you stay in touch with the woman that looked after you? I did. I did. And I think in her own odd way, she loved me. Mm. And I learned a lot about the English working class, which was to stand me in good stead in a funny way when I came to do my work, because she um, had been the eldest of 13 children born in real poverty in London. Mm. And uh, he, her husband, it was his second marriage. He, his wife had died and he'd had a daughter. And uh, then he married uh, Gran, as it were, and they had two sons. And um, he, the story was that they'd owned a laundry and he'd drunk it away. It's a very Victorian story, it really is. And um, I think she did love me in her own funny way and, and was um, and, and did miss me. But um, I suppose the thing was I'd always kept this place 
for my mother that nobody could actually replace my mother. Never. Never. Even though in my, you know, she spoke funny English and we didn't always understand one another and and that kind of thing, but nobody was ever going to um, replace her in my heart. And and nor nor my father, actually. Um, And it has to be said, another reason about the, the not coming back to London earlier my father, as I said, had served in the in the army. He'd been in France and Germany. He once told me, I hope it's not an apocryphal story, that he'd actually cooked a roast chicken for General Montgomery. Mm. Whether that had really happened, I don't know. Ne- that people like that never talked about the war, Amita. You couldn't ask them about the war. They would not talk about the war. Uh, it's a closed book. Um, and uh, But he had got pneumonia and uh, after the war and had been involved in a road traffic accident. So my mother had all that on her plate as well after the war. And so obviously she felt I was safe where I was, I was being looked after. And, um, you know, that that's how it happened. I feel we as a community can still be maybe better at supporting or sharing showing some sort of care and compassion. Have you got any words of advice? or? I think try to normalise life, actually. Um, you know, try to have a regular routine, mm. something that will give you stability. And then actually to acknowledge that there's going to be some kind of acting out. I mean, like me in the bedwetting, for example. Right. You know, there may be all sorts of other things that will happen, maybe stealing or... Whatever, it could be all sorts of things that might happen, um, which is an expression of their pain and how they can, you know, deal with it. So it needs a lot of understanding. But I would say to normalise life as much as possible. And it's lovely to hear of these Ukrainian children getting into school and, you know, being part of a school community. Sure. I mean, I think it's it's going to be the mothers who are going to suffer so much, actually, separated from their husbands. I know that my mother suffered a lot from anxiety about my father being in the army because she wouldn't have known that, you know, he'd come back safe. Mm-hmm. I know. I just wish we weren't facing the same problems that you Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's just downright criminal. Mm. It really, really is criminal mm. that we should be going through this again in Europe. Mm. And, you know, I look at the bomb cities and I think about the Europe of the Second World War with all the bomb cities and I think this this is pointless. There's no reason for this. There's no rationale for this. Mm. Nothing excuses it to destroy um, other than the aggrandizement of one man's ideas and so on. I think it is... A tragedy. I'm sorry I can't offer you any more thing. I mean, it's really no, each out person of one's has own. Their, yeah, everyone has their own yeah. personal journey and yeah. obviously their personal experiences. Yeah. And all we can hope is that as a... And there, I think the other thing, though, Ravish, like my life, there will be a legacy. Yes. There will be a legacy. And you see, when I, the evacuation and the pain of all of that, and the loss of my parents, etc., I never talked to anyone about it. Because... You just didn't. Who would hear? Who would hear? 
And there was that sense of, I suppose, resilience, you know, of coping, getting on with it. As I said, my dad was a stoic and uh, you didn't complain and you didn't moan and you didn't, you know, feel sorry for yourself. It wasn't like that. But I knew at some point in my life, I would have to go into analysis and I would have to deal with the emotional pain that I had. But you must be one of the lucky ones. There are lots of absolutely. people, I imagine, that absolutely. don't have that insight. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. that would probably be something to really think about and for anyone listening in terms of dealing with pain or if you know someone going through this kind of displacement is obviously offering them that ability to, to But talk meeting about the right it. person, you see. Yeah. And I said about my analyst, I don't know what, what there was in her experience that made her tune in. Because it's not just sort of comfort stuff. It, it's something about recognising something mm. and going to the heart of something. Right. But you see, I, I, yes, I, another memory I have actually, going to medical school, I was at University College Hospital London and uh, we had to have a medical. And I do remember this doctor so vividly. Um, she was a rather abrupt German woman, I think. And she said, uh, just go behind the couch, uh, behind the blind or whatever it was, and uh, undress. Um, and so I did, because I was told. And she examined, yes, I think you are perfectly all right. And, um, and then it's almost like a throwaway afterthought. She said, and is there anything that you wish to add? And I thought, there's no way I'm telling you anything. <laughs> and, you know, the sense that she really didn't want to know, and nor could she have coped mm. with anything that I'd said to her. So I said, no, no, nothing, right. nothing. And, yeah. and so people ne never knew. And even later, when I went into analysis, I remember telling old school friends that I'd been at secondary school with, and they said, oh, Elphis, why, why did you do that? Why did you need to do that? Goodness. And they just didn't have any idea. No concept. Of course not. So that, yeah, that barrier of feeling mm. misunderstood, not being understood, and then that lack of empathy. Absolutely. Which is something we're working quite hard on at Elevate to try and teach other girls, even if you're not going through these experiences, what can mm. you do to show up mm. for the friends and the colleagues and the peers that you are? And you see, the other thing, Ramita, you develop defences. Of course you do. I, I, I didn't know the language at that time, but I do, obviously, having been in analysis, uh, that you uh, and my defence was, uh, you know, to be um, rather aggressive, defensive. Nobody was going to get through to me. Mm. You weren't going to let anyone see the pain. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And that does lead me on beautifully to the idea of you moving on to your profession of medicine and how you chose it, for one thing, what led you onto that career and how you might want to share some of your thoughts on being at university as a female doctor? Well, um, I have to say it began with my mother. My mother had come, as I said, from a, a poor background, and uh, but she had uncles. You have to understand stuff about immigrant. Um, in Cyprus, uh, men marry the woman, she has a dowry. My grandfather married my grandmother because she had a dowry. She had fields. She'd been an orphan. And so this was prosperity in their terms. He sold the fields to pay for his brothers to have an education. And they all said they would pay back, and they never did. Cool. 
And one had become a doctor, one had become a teacher, one had become a chemist. And my mother had that in her mind. And so when I was little, she would say to me, Abby, you are going to be a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor, etc. <laughs> and no, nope, you were too busy dancing. <laughs> so, so um, and then at, at uh, secondary school, um, I, history was my first love, I have to say, and I had thought of doing history or doing law. And my headmistress, who's a very perceptive woman, she said, Elvis, as a daughter of immigrants, you will do better doing medicine. Okay than doing law. You'll have more opportunity. And that stuck with me, actually. You know, when I was teetering at A-level stage, do I do arts? Do I do sciences? So I did the sciences and um, and I got to, to medical school. I was head girl of the school. It always helps, these things. <laughs> uh, it was an all-girls school. And I'm not sorry it was an all-girls school, actually. I know people are going on about being co-ed nowadays. I think boys would have been a real distraction. So I'm quite pleased <laughs> I was in a girls' school. Uh, and, and at that stage, we all fell in love with Marlon Brando, which Donald, my beloved husband, hates to this day. <laughs> and um, so, you know, one lives vicariously. So I uh, got to medical school. Um, and in those days, they, were, they had a sort of quota. This is 1955. And they had a quota for entry. Um, and so I had to do first what they called first MB, which was to do the subjects I'd done at A-level, zoology, physics and chemistry. I had to redo the zoology. I mean, I'd passed them all. That wasn't the issue. And then they added in botany at a very ordinary level thing. But of course, it brought me Donald, which was wonderful, my husband. Mm -hmm. So no regrets there. And then doing second MB. Um, and I, I really, I love studying, but I think I, I, I worked, and this is a real lesson for young people too. I studied in a certain way at secondary school, trying to master everything, and that was fatal. Um, so I failed anatomy, um, very humiliatingly. I passed physiology and biochemistry. And of course, I had to resit that. And that was devastating because I knew if I failed that, I, I would be out. But you know the saying, uh, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. And um, so the second time round, I did pass anatomy. And in a funny way, that turned out to be a good thing too, because um, the original group that I was with, what I call, I don't know if they exist today, but the grammar school SWAT, and they weren't very educated in a broader sense. They didn't know about literature, the theater and so on. And I'd always had that kind of wider interest. And so the people that I then joined for the hospital work had been to Cambridge or Oxford, and they seemed to have broader perspectives. And so I, I got on very well with them, actually, and I liked being with them. So... So you had a good experience. So it, it really was. It, yeah. it, it was a lovely experience, and I had some lovely, lovely teachers. I was also taught by very famous physician, Professor Rosenheim, who I adored. He was a lovely, lovely doctor. And you kind of learn the way of being with patients. And uh, in that sense, from your mentors, from the people, you know, who, who give you that extra thing of being with patients and respect to them and 
I was always interested in people. That was the other thing, of course. I, I, I but I also wonder if your own personal experiences and what you went through as a child and looking at that you said you observed the relationships yes. between your family yes. members, that must have also given you a, a human connection. Yes. Or ability to connect. Reading people. people right? Very much so. Yeah, which yeah. makes all yeah. the difference yeah. when you're feeling vulnerable and you're trying to yeah. communicate with your physician yeah. about anything. Yeah, very I think much so. That makes, I know from my own personal experience, it makes a huge difference yes. uh, about whether or not you can open up yes. to somebody. Absolutely. And how proud was your mum that you chose medicine? Enormously proud. <laughs> I mean, really, really. And my father would boast to everybody, you know. In fact, funnily enough, years later, I met a Greek guy that my father knew and he said... Um, your father always used to boast about you, but we never believed him. And I thought, you horrible man. <laughs> and I said, well, here I am. And I proved him right. Nice. <laughs> nice. And was it common for females to pursue medicine at that point? No, it wasn't. And um, But I always had, you know, great encouragement from my parents, of course, and also from the school. They were absolutely supportive. Um, and I'm trying to work out the numbers, but I think that there were something like 60 in the class, and I would think something like about only 10, something like that, 10, 12 were women. I have to say, Ramita, I loved that because I liked being with the men. <laughs> Nothing like some honesty. That was, yes, you know, always a, a good reason to pursue uh, one field of uh, professions at the moment. I keep trying to get women into STEM subjects, aren't there? Yes. So, yes. girls, if you are looking for that attention, <laughs> there is always ways. But you obviously drew a lot more from the career and the, and the subjects and the learning from it. And I think the advice and, and you know, you've been talking to my daughter as well about pursuing a career in which you feel passion yes. and and curiosity yes. about I think very is really important so. yeah very that so. that is important so I'm glad you didn't just go into medicine because your mum wanted to get back at some immigrant you know no. squabble no. there wasn't that because no. a lot of families do end up you know putting pressure on their on their no. young ones for things that possibly no. aren't their true um, calling absolutely and I was with someone who was like that actually uh, one of our uh, friends, colleagues, she did medicine because her uh, father had pushed her into it and she never wanted to do it. Yeah. I never. mean, in, in the Indian culture, it, it, being a doctor is looked at as, as almost next to God, you know, so yes. it was always the desirable husband to have yes. for your daughter. Or yes. if, the, if the daughter herself was yes. a doctor, then she was also going to be very great marriage material <laughs> in, in 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 lots of indian families are still carry that belief it's it's quite disheartening um but then you go on to become a mother and now a grandmother of course as well you've raised three of your own fantastic girls and the journey of motherhood and raising families is such an interesting one i think for so many reasons what do you think are the main differences if anything in motherhood when from when you were young and to so for when you're when your girls were young and now that your grandkids are being brought up, what do you notice in terms of major differences or if there are any at all in that generational shift? I'm not sure about that, actually. I mean, I know that for me, um, there was a conflict about being a mother and having a career. There's no question. Right. And um, I knew that I wanted children and I had them really quite fast. Um, my daughter was born in 63, then I had one in 65 and one in 67. 
Um, that played against me in one way, because when I went on to a career in family planning, some of my patients would say to me, well, Doc, have you got children? Yes. How many have you got? Three. How old are they? I would say. And they would say, well, what are you looking, visiting me for then? <laughs> so I would say, well, I'm not going to have any more. Oh. And then they would say things like, but don't you want a son? And I said, no, I am very happy with my daughters. Yeah. Um, but there was always this dilemma of a child care. And it's inevitable. You, you know, this thing of doing everything, having everything. Um, it, it's a tough, tough call. And I began work when they were very tiny. And, and that's a bit of my life that I regret that I didn't spend more time with them, though I didn't try. I wasn't ambitious in the sense of, you know, getting the MRCP or being a surgeon. And that would have taken me away from them. I didn't want to do that. Um, so I... Uh, when they were little, I would work, say, half a day, and then I'd come home. And I had various child carers who I didn't have anyone living in. I had um, I found a wonderful woman who looked after our daughters um, from up until they were eight, nine years old. But I wouldn't work a full day. I wanted to be back. I wanted to get them from school. I wanted to be there mm. so that they could tell me their little stories and whatever had happened in the day um, to have that connection. But it is a tough call. There's no question. And you have to have a supportive partner. It's very tough if you're on your own, particularly. But that you're... hasn't changed today, has no, it? No, it hasn't. Mm. No, it hasn't. And and women do carry the burden of it, really. Um, well, A, that you're pregnant yeah, <laughs> and that you breastfeed <laughs> and all of that. Sure. And, and uh, but yeah. That's a shame. You know, we talked about things that haven't moved on in terms of what we're experiencing with war. And now we're talking about what we're experiencing with women and the growth that, although that we feel that there has been a lot of, improvement in in women's rights we are sitting in a time where for those of you that might be listening to this a bit later but at a time when the u.s legislation and the supreme court has ruled um making abortion illegal and yes. now the, the reason i really want to touch on this with you is because you were also a physician at a time where abortion in the uk wasn't legalized yet and yeah does it feel perverse to be sitting here today yes. and looking yes. at yeah yes it is it is very perverse and it's reliving a whole struggle that we had when I first began to work in family planning I began in uh, 1966 and it was very evident you know with uh, women who had unwanted unplanned pregnancies and what they wanted to do and we all knew about backstreet abortions and we knew that people had died and we knew that uh, wealthy women could go to Harley Street, pay somebody and have what they call a DNC, dilatation and curatage, which would get rid of a pregnancy. But it was, wasn't called that. And we all knew of that uh, situation. So when the abortion law uh, was passed in this country, it was a very, very good thing. And the thing I want to stress, actually, Ramita, why am I a family planner or why was I a family planner? It's not that I like abortion and I don't think I would have had an abortion myself, 
But I think giving women the right to choose whether they what they want to do about it and also to make family planning. If, if the, the people who've, who've overturned the abortion thing in the States, if they made family planning free and right across the board for women, you know, th- that would at, at one level make more sense. But they don't. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, you know, it's always I always used to feel counselling women who who came for termination of pregnancy, let's look at the contraceptive side. What happened? What went wrong? And often it was because, you know, a relationship had broken up. When she got pregnant, he didn't really want to know. Um, There could be a thousand and one reasons why it had happened, or they were made afraid of the contraceptive methods and stop using them as another pill panic hit the the, the fan, so to speak. Um, and then they would end up pregnant and, and not want to be. But it has to be a woman's choice and, and they have to be in charge of their own bodies. Now, when I began working in Harringay, we didn't have a consultant in the local hospital who would do abortions. And I and several doctors worked to try and get somebody appointed. And we did eventually get someone, uh, Roger Clements, bless him, uh, appointed at the North Middlesex Hospital. And he did set up an abortion service. But one of the things that really came home to me was the death of a patient of mine. It was an Afro-Caribbean woman. She had four children and she um, had a new partner and she got pregnant, but she felt she couldn't cope with five children. Now, I referred her to uh, a doctor who I knew would do abortions, but reluctantly. And she went for her consultation, and the doctor decided that as this was a new partner and a pregnancy for him, and she refused the abortion. And what happened was, I learned later, She had met somebody um, from Birmingham or somewhere who was a backstreet abortionist, basically, use of the old knitting needles and uh, all of that. And she had tried to procure an abortion and she had died. Now, what was the point of that? To leave four motherless children. Mm. That's the sort of situation. Yeah that, you know, one really doesn't want to see happening anymore. So I I feel very strongly about that. It's a very, very retrograde thing that the Americans have done. And I was always struck as well in Harringay, the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Oh, the hypocrisy. There was one nursing sister, I recall, who inveighed against me. I was a wicked woman. Mm-hmm. All of that until, of course, her daughter becomes pregnant unwantedly. And who is it that she refers her to? You. Me. Of course, yeah. And I can quote many like that of of the hypocrisy. So it was all, I don't know, I just, it just, it makes me very, very sad and very angry. And I long for the day... That, that women, well, I think it's moving that way, that they will be able to have a pill that they can decide for themselves to abort a pregnancy if that's what they choose to do without involving anyone else. So you don't have to share your story and no. the risk of being judged. No. 
Yeah, that that itself, the the shame that we bring upon women, as if they Absolutely. are going through enough turmoil. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. do. I do think. And what is. about rape? What about incest? Mm. I saw the lot in Haringey, mm. a lot, because one of the my chief work in Haringey was something called domiciliary family planning. Uh, because family planning initially was not on the National Health Service. That only came in 75. But when I began work, uh, it wasn't free. I mean, women, when they came to family planning clinics, they would either have to pay themselves or pay for the supplies, depended on what local authority you lived in. Whether, And there was a saying, oh, sex on the rates. So that was a wicked thing, you know. Um, so... What would happen uh, to people who, you know, had these unwanted pregnant? I mean, that's what led me into doing all that. But the visiting of women at home, um, we had a very enlightened medical officer of health at that time because the NHS was divided into three parts at that time, hospitals, public health and community and the GP. And he was in charge of public health and he initiated this domiciliary family planning which meant that we, myself and a couple of nurses, would go around and visit uh, poor families or for whatever reasons um, they would be referred to us by health visitors or social workers. And um, I visited over 3,500 women and it was a joy and such a learning experience because that's how I knew about the different cultures um, the Afro-Caribbean, Bangladeshi, the Cypriot, the Irish. You know, it was so enriching learning about their cultures, attitudes to sexuality, male and female, um, all kinds of things, actually. Yeah. I mean, I read some in one of your interviews that you were speaking to young women that didn't actually know the body parts no. or the, the actual no. reproductive organs didn't no. have any knowledge no. because no. nobody taught them. No, no, no. And that's what put me into sex education, of course, yeah. Yeah. because why should people be deprived of knowledge? Mm. I, that made me very cross, actually, and also made me cross with Mary Whitehouse at <laughs> the time I made that film. Oh, that takes me back. But... Um, but thank goodness for people like you and for having that foresight and wanting to empower young people and young women about what was happening to them in their own physicality and not yes. having been kept ignorant or kept being being kept their choices from them and not knowing all of that. It just makes me think, thank goodness I grew up in the time that I grew up in, yet at the same time I worry because now my daughter and her friends are looking at their the American counterparts. I know it's happening in America, but I wanted to ask you, just because it's happening in the US doesn't mean it's not affecting women all over the world, whatever this is. Yes. It's a real crisis yes. in, in, in women's rights yes. globally. Um, what do you think we should be doing or how can we be doing to combat these types of setbacks that I think that we're facing? Oh, it's going to be a really, really tough call, actually, um, because of all the stuff with the social media, um, you know, the religious groups that, that yeah. so firmly believe in it. I, I think one just has to, I mean, there have been various moves in Parliament, for example. It hasn't happened recently, but there were various motions that were put to Parliament to try to overturn David Steele's abortion bill, actually. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And and uh, 
But luckily, we, you know, I think the doctors have certainly come round to supporting. I mean, not all doctors did. Uh, and this is what I meant. I, I think I interrupted myself over when I started working in family planning, that there weren't doctors who actually did abortions at the North Middlesex. So getting somebody appointed who would, mm-hmm. um, you know, maintaining that kind of level of, of um, activity and um making sure that those uh, services are provided. But what do we find now are religious groups going outside abortion clinics and praying for the fetus. And they would go into schools and they would show six-month fetuses and say, "These, this is what abortion is. No, it is not. That is very rare to have abortions at that stage. Mm-hmm. That mostly are done under 12 weeks. And so it's a protect, you know, I never... When I counsel people, actually, Ramita, for abortion, I wouldn't use the term baby. I would use the term a potential life. Is this what you really, really want to do? Let's look at it honestly and straightforwardly. And so it allowed the woman a space to grieve. You know, she and most of the women I've ever counseled for abortion had already made up their minds. It was very, very few that were ambivalent. And if they were ambivalent, they'd present late. Mm -hmm. Um, And something had changed, whatever, in the background. So most women, but it also gave uh, an opportunity to to just regret that the pregnancy had happened. And that could lead you into thinking, well, let's think about the contraception, make it better for you this time. Again, you speak to the power of words and language and how something lands, if we use the appropriate terminology, including the scientific names of some of the body parts that we refer to. And then, of course, the terminology around the the, the actual pregnancy stages. I think you're absolutely right in people playing to emotions and not thinking about the full picture and the rational brain not working, the emotional brain taking over and probably not helping people that are in vulnerable stages already. And again, it does go back to the girls. I know there's lots of responsibility here for boys. We're not talking about the boys at all in this conversation. Um, Elevate, it does generally speak and talk about girls with mental well-being and health, but obviously there is a whole section of here that we're, the genders we're forgetting about, which is the men and their responsibility in all of this and where it lies and why should women bear the brunt of, of and teenage girls or whoever else is being affected by these unwanted pregnancies or just whatever is going on in terms of violation to their yes. rights to choose. Yes. It's, it's I, I feel very sorry for young girls though nowadays, Ramita, because of that whole pressure of uh, social media, which of course we d- I didn't have in in, our, in my day working. Right. So I really worry for young girls with the, the pressure, with the peer pressure and what they imagine everybody else is doing or they're saying or exposing their bodies on you know these awful awful negative images and I I find that really really tragic for um, girls and what they're up against with all of that especially that time of puberty when you're so uncertain about yourself are you attractive does anyone fancy you what's going to happen you know and your body uh, doesn't seem to be the same as everybody else's. Either your boobs are too big or they're too small or they're not the right size or something. You know, women, I, 
I don't know. Girls can be awful to each other as well. It has to be said. It's not just the opposite sex. You know, it is the... But I do remember I loved doing the sex education in school. I went into every, every secondary school in Haringey. And there was one particular school uh, down in South Tottenham, and they were a wild, wild bunch. And you had to be quite resolute when you went, because I'd go in with all the contraceptive methods, and I would hold up a, a condom, which did infuriate poor Mary Whitehouse. I don't know if she'd ever seen one before. And um, and I never forget with the kids, there, there's a whole bunch of them and they were all, you know, it was all very exciting, 14, 15, 16, oh, we're going to talk about sex. And, um, and, and the boys would challenge you. They'd come up very shyly, uh, getting rid of other people, and they'd say, Miss, do, do the things come in different sizes? <laughs> Yeah, and I'd hug them and, you know, talk to them about anxieties, about penis size, etc. And then you'd get the, the one in your face who, who wanted to disconcert you. So I'll never forget this boy of about, whatever, 14, 15. Hey, miss. And, of course, he was the joker of the class. And he, he said, um, and what do you do if you have lipstick on your cock? So he thought I would blush and fall apart or do something. So I just said, well, you just wash it off then, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> just like you would on any other part of your body. <laughs> wow, I admire your your incredible persona, being able to hold yourself together and, and not wanting to giggle at someone, someone saying something like that to you. Oh, I love um, them. Yeah. I love them, Ramita. Uh, and it, and it just too. showed you... Um, you know how they they wanted proper information. They 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 really really did, and it was being withheld from them. And I do understand the teacher's position in this. Actually, if you're teaching maths or science or whatever, you, you know you're probably very embarrassed at actually uh, then moving on to to sexuality. And it's become so complicated, even more complicated now. Um, obviously with with lgbt rights and and all of that is becoming very hard i think to to pitch it at the right level of of giving good information and being sensitive you know to people's emotions and, and, and so on yeah and also i think this whole issue of of um i always used because i was advisor to the sex education in, in the schools in Haringey, and i used to say there's sometimes where you need to separate the sexes. If the girls want to talk about periods, they don't want to talk about periods in front of the boys. Why should they? Mm. It's personal. It, they, they might have all kinds of problems and issues with it. So there were times that you'd want them separate, times that you'd want them together and help the communication between them. And I have to say, medical school was not good at teaching about sex. When I was at medical school... Um, we had the reproductive system. Oh, that's good. Maybe we'll learn about sex now. And the blinds were pulled down. But it was all about after the sperm had met the ovum, not actually the process of. <laughs> but they skip right past that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> in and medical school. Absolutely. Wow. And, I, and I did teaching in medical school, actually, as well, with psychosexual problems and things like that because they have a terribly terribly crowded curriculum it's enormous the number of facts that, that uh, medical students have to learn so it, it gets put on the shelf it isn't you know no I did a lot of work with with that too 
So on that note then, Dr. Christopher, what gives you hope? Oh, I, I looked at your question, Ramita, and I just thought, what does? I don't know, because it's, you know, certain steps forward and certain steps back. Um, it'll be young people, really, finding their way if, if they're not so obsessed and conditioned by fake news. And we as adults have to do all the best we can to give them good information, mm -hmm. correct information. And young people may see themselves, you know, th through this in some way. But I do fear for them, Ramita. We're facing so many problems, climate change, um, extinction of, of species, pandemics, and then this war. So that, 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 I don't know. You know, after the Second World War, people thought it won't happen again. We've learnt the lesson. Cities being bombed, people displaced, the Holocaust, all of that. We won't go back there again, but we've gone back there again. And what is it about human beings that they like to kill each other and destroy things? I, I think we have to get much more psychological insight into people to realise about people's motivations mm. and what determines that. So... My name is Hope, paradoxically. Um, of course, Alpha's meaning hope in, in the Greek world. Uh, absolutely. So one, one only, and of course, we remember Pandora's box, mm. where all the nasty things came out, yeah. and the last thing was hope to come out. So let's let's keep that going then. Hope yeah, for young yeah. people, yeah, and and having the adults around them to give them the right information. I think that's. That's and I think well you're said. doing a great job, Ramita, and I love the elevating girl. I think it's it's super, actually, and the more of that, the better, actually, to, to help um, young people. And, 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 and boys, too, do need things. I, I mean, I worry for the boys, too, because it's very hard being growing up to be a man. Yes. It really, really sure. is. Sure. Yeah. You know, Margaret Mead, that anthropologist, many, many years ago said... At one level, it's easier being a girl than it is being a boy. Because with a girl, you know you could have children, you have a role, you have a purpose. But with a boy, what? You know, they're expected to do, you know, talking about being man up and all of that stuff. I think it's quite tough. So I, I, I always try in sex education, deal with both both the sexes, you know, not prioritizing one over the other. Each have got their own difficulties, and yeah, no, I, I hear you, and I think you're right. Both all all young people need elevating. I completely agree with that, and I think where where you say that boys can have it really hard, I I can see that too. But at the same time, I feel, look around and I think about the number of women who get you know the, the obvious repercussions of of choices that. Men yes, of course. Might be oh, no. I understand that. No, and that of course. Does, yeah, that does worry me for, for no. young people. And they should not have control over women's bodies. Yeah. That is an absolute yeah. no, that, no. You know, the decisions being made by men for women yeah. is, is quite an yeah. quite a horrific one, if you ask me. So moving on then to something positive. What brings you joy in your day-to-day -day life? <laughs> well, I, I suppose top of the list really is is being with Donald, my husband. Um we lead a very quiet life now. And we're both quite pleased about that. There aren't pressures on us. You know, we were all such busy, busy people. Donald was a scientist with all the responsibilities that goes with that. And um, 
and me with medicine and then doing the psychotherapy. So it's lovely to feel I'm neither of us are under that kind of pressure. Our daughters, of course, they, they bring me enormous joy. I'm proudest of, of having had three lovely, lovely daughters and our grandchildren. Mm. Although alongside that for our grandchildren is worry. You know, I worry about the future for them. Sure. Um, we've had our life and it's been a good life in many, many ways. But what is the future for them and what they've got to to struggle with. You know, when we were growing up, we weren't thinking about climate change or that kind of thing. That, that's come recently. And um, yes. Yeah, the world has kind of taken a, a bit of a dark turn these days for young people. But my also my hope is that they're the ones that are much more aware and much more in tune yes. to some of these issues that I certainly don't think many of us were when we were younger. So I applaud the generation and, and your grandchildren being probably part of that group of kids that are just yeah. super motivated and out there becoming activists yeah. to help us all along. <laughs> Excellent. And what would you encourage young girls, maybe even boys, to do more of each day to, joy, to create joy in their life in the simple things? Because I think, like you said, earlier in the conversation in terms of the enormous pressures about looking right, being liked, being fancied. Am I going to have a boyfriend? Am I going to make it to university? All the things that might be going on and the worry that people have about what's coming. Yeah. Sometimes I think we forget to just be still and enjoy Absolutely. Today. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there things that we can be doing? Well, <laughs> maybe it isn't the doing. Maybe it is the being. Being, yeah. Okay. Maybe so, it uh, is the being, which is just to enjoy the things around you. Nature particularly, I think the pandemic has made all of us very aware of that, what we've missed out on with, with nature. And connection with people that matter. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 And I think I would encourage young people to, to get involved in growing things. I think if you, and I know everybody can't have a garden and that kind of thing, but I think if they're, they're growing something, um that, that's very meaningful i think to to see life going on and life will go on actually even if we bring this poor planet to something dreadful there'll be some forms of life i'm sure that will go on maybe we wouldn't like them but i think <laughs> that's a good message isn't it? Yes. Lime, let's try and bring the good parts of life up go to go yes. on <laughs> okay well that's nice i like that advice i think that's really sweet um pick something that you could grow and i think that's and also cook actually yeah cooking you know very elemental things that people have lost now you know young people cooking for themselves and going back to basics i think is an important thing for us all to remember and rejoicing in the simplistic yes. parts of that Absolutely. yeah if you could go back to yourself and whisper something what would you say have faith it'll be okay and there it is that hope <laughs> That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Elphis, for your time. Thank you for being here today. And thank you for everything you've done for young females, women, and for what you're doing even now by being here today. It means a lot. So. Well, thank you, Ramita. It's been very enjoyable. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and that concludes my conversation with the lovely Dr. Elphis Christopher. I do hope all of you found it as enlightening, informative, and of course, as endearing as I did. 
And I also hope that in her honor and in her legacy, that her hard work and effort continue to shape and shift the narrative for young girls and women everywhere on healthcare and education.